place of the built-in experience that came with the old employment model, the studios have begun offering a lottery-based, you know, unpaid internship opportunities for writers to visit the sets of the series that they work on, which seems insane. Unfortunately, uh, we will be going on strike in the very near future over the contract, and and at the rate things are going, I suspect it could be pretty lengthy. Have you seen this viral video where the young woman talks about getting a raise of 10 cents? She hands her a review and says, don't look at this right now. But when she does, she sees she's only getting an annual raise of 10 cents. We were able to get a hat that you could wear if you wanted and didn't have to wear if you didn't want to. The unique part about being an iron worker is a ton of iron still weighs a ton of iron. There's a gradation of subordination and uh, and exploitation, um, which in our history uh, includes literal enslavement, but for, also includes death peonage, includes convict leasing, it includes uh, basically the crop lien system. On today's Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, from Labor Radio on Cable FM, Michael and Elliot discuss the ongoing screenwriter strike. Ken Hall, president of Teamsters Local 175, discusses contract negotiations at Coca-Cola Consolidated on America's Workforce Radio, the impact of short-form video for Union Organizer on the Million Dollar Organizer podcast, and from one of our very newest shows, the WestJet MEC PyRep podcast, details on a new agreement with WestJet. Then, Ironworkers General President Eric Dean on the Construction Users 2.0. And in our last segment from We Rise Fighting, Steve Babson, author of Forgotten Populist When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Highlights from the hundreds of great labor radio shows and podcasts from across the country and around the world. Here's the show. Welcome to Labor Radio on KBOO Portland. I am Michael Cathcart. And I'm Elliot Gilland. And now on to the story we're going to be covering today. Earlier this month, the Writers Guild of America, or the WGA, and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or the AMPTP, uh, which is the industry group that represents the executives uh, of major Hollywood studios as well as the streaming platforms, uh, those two groups failed to reach a deal on a minimum bargaining agreement by the May 1st deadline, which led to uh, the Writers Guild to call for their first strike since 2007. Mm -hmm. And the main issues at play here are pay scales, residual fees, and base employment guarantees. In fact, you know, uh, the very first WGA strike took place in 1960, and it resulted in writers getting a share of profits when a movie was aired on TV, while a 1973 strike focused in on part of the emerging market, you know, of cable. And of course, in uh, their 1980s, they, or in the 1980s, they saw a series of strikes over the transition to home video. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of the 2007 strike, the most recent one, the WGA ensured that, you know, quote, new media, which is basically anything um, distributed online, uh, was covered by the Guild's collective bargaining agreement, 
which is referred to as the Minimum Basic Agreement or the MBA. Um, and that sets the floor for how little studios are allowed to pay writers for their work. Um, and in the 15 years since that strike, uh, we have seen an explosion in TV production largely tied to the streaming services, meaning that more and more writers are doing work that pays worse and worse in, and is less secure. Now, this same philosophy is behind another uh, newer practice the writers are opposing known as, quote, mini rooms. Um, now, these mini rooms are essentially writers rooms with fewer writers contracted for shorter periods of time. Uh, on these kinds of jobs, fewer writers work for less time and lower pay in a fashion that is far less connected to the eventual finished series or movie. Yeah, and if you see someone describing the studios as attempting to turn writing into gig work, this is partly what they're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and worse still, it means fewer writers are able to get the uh, experience that actually allows them to advance their careers and eventually become showrunners themselves. You know, as a natural condition of their job, generally, writers uh, have traditionally been able to observe the ins and outs of the industry, including like visiting sets, interacting with directors and actors, and participating in the editing process. Um, but as a result, they gain, you know, as a result of that, they gain more experience and eventually become capable of running the shows themselves. Um, to give just one example, uh, we would never have gotten The Sopranos had David Chase not spent years writing for shows like Rockford Files and the uh, Northern Exposure. Mm -hmm. Squeezing production tighter and reducing opportunities for advancement means that over time there will be fewer and fewer people capable of actually making the media that studios need to be able to fill all of these streaming services. Yeah, and that means, you know, from a consumer's perspective, that means that the quality of the shows and movies that are available to us are going to see a market decline. Um, and in place of the built-in experience that came with the old employment model, the studios have begun uh, offering a lottery-based, you know, unpaid internship opportunities for writers to visit the sets of the series that they work on, which seems insane. If you're writing the, the scripts for these shows, you should be able to be there to represent the writing to the people that are then putting it to the actors. But instead, it's like a lottery-based system to see if you're lucky enough to get to go visit the set. These new types of writer rooms also put limitations on the finished product uh, in the present. You know, as an example, um, I, I've seen shared a, a lot recently, uh, or sorry, an example I've seen shared a lot recently is that the new Netflix series, Beef, uh, in their mini room, it actually finished, they finished working uh, before they got to, the, to write the season finale. And that meant that the show's creator was left to write the last episode of the series alone while also overseeing production of that of the the series, so you know even if these working conditions seem abstract to us lay people, you know as viewers, it's clear that they're having a serious impact on the lives of the writers employed under them, and on the quality of the shows that they're creating, and you know that we get to actually we are back with you next month. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for tuning into Labor Radio. I am Michael Cathcart, and I'm Ellie Gilland. Have a wonderful evening. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrets with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Real simple, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this portion of America's Workforce, sponsored by the good folks at IMED. Switching to managed vision care may save your fun money and deliver a better experience. So, do this. Go to IMED.com slash union and you will learn a whole lot more. All right, let's go to our live line and joining us from Alum Creek, West Virginia, which is about 10 miles outside of Charleston, is Ken Hall. Ken is president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, local 175, teamsters175.org. Going on almost 48 years as a member of a very powerful union. Ken's been on the show a couple of times in a different position 
He was the number two guy, Secretary Treasurer, at International for a number of years, from uh, 92 to last year. And right now he's dealing with a strike with uh, Coca-Cola workers. So we got lots to talk about on the show. Ken Hall, how we doing, brother? We're doing great. Uh, considering uh, I'm having to deal with a very unreasonable company, unfortunately, uh, we will be going on strike in the very near future over the contract. And and at the rate things are going, I suspect it could be pretty lengthy. We've had uh, we've had a couple of issues over the past few years uh, leading up to where we're at now, which is it, it's nonsensical where we're at. They've decided that. Despite the fact for the past 75 years or so that we've represented them, they've never attempted this, but now they want, uh, they've decided they want to directly ship product to one of their customers, Sheets. Sheets mm-hmm. is a convenience store, a growing convenience store, they're pretty, they're oh, pretty yeah. big. Uh, so they decided without uh, discussing without, with us first, without negotiating with us first, they reached some agreement to eliminate our drivers and ship product directly from their warehouse or from their, uh, actually their uh, uh, manufacturing plants directly to Sheets Warehouse. So what that does is it eliminates, one, it eliminates pay that our members get because our members get paid a commission based on the number of cases that are sold. And eventually it eliminates jobs. So uh, that's been one of the sticking points, although I, w- I must say uh, Sheets, has <clears throat> Sheets has decided to uh, withdraw from that agreement <clears throat> at the t- for the time being. Uh, they have they've been very clear that they do not want to be in the middle of a labor dispute, so <laughs> Sheets has, has uh, announced that they're going to continue to receive their product from our drivers. Wow. Uh, which is uh, look when when this first happened, uh, I said publicly that I'm surprised with this because Sheets typically uh, is is a good neighbor. So I mean they they don't want to get involved in controversial things. And I think at the end what happened is uh, they entered this agreement. And it covers more than West Virginia. It's, it's in uh, it's in. Uh, I think most of the areas where that Sheets cover Sheets has uh, presence. I know there's in Ohio, uh, other locations, Pennsylvania, other locations. So uh, I think very clearly, Coca-Cola didn't disclose to Sheets that that they had a contract, that they they had an obligation to bargain with the union over it, and so Sheets got caught up in the middle, and. And, and they're out of it now. I mean, they, they may eventually reach an agreement if we ever get a contract, but right now, that they're not receiving a direct shipment. So that that has helped to try to get us over the hump. We also represent Pepsi, and in most of the state, uh, similar to, to what we do with Coke, Pepsi is just the opposite. They want all their they want all the product that they deliver to come off their trucks. Uh, they don't. They don't want some third party uh, servicing their customers. So this is just Coke. We don't have this issue with. We represent beer companies. We represent you know soft drink companies. We represent the milk companies. None of these companies are trying to do something like this. 
Only Coca-Cola Consolidated. Ken Hall joining us on our live line right now. Ken serves as president of Teamsters Local 175. Teamsters175.org is our website. We'll continue the conversation with him later in the show. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show. Tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust. Now here's your host, Bob Odie. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. Welcome to the podcast, where we explore innovative strategies and tools for union organizing. In today's episode, number 74, Lights, Camera, Action, the impact of short-form video on union organizing. Don't miss out. We're diving into the world of short-form video and its relevance for union organizing. Specifically, we'll be focusing on YouTube Shorts and how it can be a powerful tool for reaching a wider audience and building support for your union. Short-form video content has become increasingly popular in recent years, capturing the attention of millions of viewers in just a matter of seconds. YouTube Shorts, a feature introduced by YouTube, allows creators to upload vertical videos of up to 60 seconds in length. These shorts are specifically designed to be easily discoverable and shareable, making them a valuable asset for union organizers. One of the reasons why YouTube Shorts are so relevant for union organizing is because of the platform's algorithm. YouTube's algorithm heavily promotes shorts content, giving it an increased visibility and exposure to viewers. This means that by creating compelling and engaging shorts, union organizers can effectively reach a larger audience and generate more interest in their cause. Have you seen this viral video where the young woman talks about getting a raise of 10 cents? I'm paraphrasing here, but her manager pulls her aside and tells her she should be really proud of herself. She hands her a review and says, don't look at this right now. But when she does, she sees she's only getting an annual raise of 10 cents. It's so powerful, on so many levels. This is classic storytelling. I think all of us had had this happen at one point in our lives. Or maybe we know somebody who has. Maybe that's why it's so relatable. The short format of YouTube Shorts is ideal for capturing attention in a fast-paced digital landscape. It allows union organizers to convey key messages share powerful stories, and showcase the impact of their work. These bite-sized videos can be seen and shared, increasing the chances of them going viral. Now, wouldn't that be fun? When creating YouTube Shorts for union organizing, it's important to keep a few key factors in mind. First, focus on delivering a clear and concise message that resonates. Whether it's highlighting worker stories, sharing information about labor rights, or showcasing the benefits of union membership, Make sure your shorts have a strong and compelling narrative. Pay extra attention to how things look visually. Ask yourself, are they attention-grabbing? Use captions and on-screen text to reinforce your message. Keep in mind, many viewers watch videos on mobile devices without sound. Remember, the goal is to captivate and inspire viewers to take action and support your union. Together, we can utilize this powerful tool to build support for workers' rights. Thanks for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you'd like to hear the Million Dollar Organizer talk about. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
at Union Organizer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Jet Pilots and other podcast listeners, and welcome to this special edition of Pyrep. My name's Captain Chris Thal. I'm sitting here with Captain Bernie Lewell once again. Uh, it is 3 a.m. Eastern time out here in Toronto. We're on the 15th floor of the Weston Hotel, and Bernie, something extraordinary happened tonight. Good morning, Chris. It's been a, an interesting day, I gotta say. You know, there were some ups, some downs. But I, I think it ended on a pretty good note. I think that's a good way to put it, Bernie. It's sure been a long couple days. I think uh, the cumulative total of sleep that we've had in the last few days is four or five hours. Uh, we've been at this nonstop. Again, the negotiating committee, they've been fully committed. We've been right there with them the best we can to support them. All the local reps were out this this week, essentially, but especially the last couple days, fully engaged in this hotel to make sure that we could bring the pilots a deal. And... Spoiler alert, Bernie, but what happened at 12.30 a.m. Eastern Time? Well, I was going to start out with Monday when we had the picket, and then you're right. Uh, we came out to uh, Markham, Ontario, spent a few days there, got kicked out of that hotel. That hotel filled up, so uh, we had to move out to uh, the west and on, uh, on Dixon Road here. And uh, you're right, all the reps are here, the negotiating team is here, you and I have and uh, and Jason uh, Roberts have been here for for the whole time. And uh, today, or the evening, I guess, before we were supposed to go on strike, we came to a deal with the company. You know, as as tough as we've fought the fight and as well positioned as we've been to go on strike, at some point it's also very important as MEC leadership and as LECs to understand where the deal is. And we could have held out and we, you know, people are going to argue you could have got more, you could have got less. We could have got nothing. I mean, so at the end of the day, we, we were able to find a spot where we said this is good for both parties and we are ready to present something to the pilots. I do want to switch topics here a little bit, Chris. The operation right now is in a shambles. 97% of flights were canceled for Friday. This is going to take a team effort to get the operation up and running. And I would like to put a call out to the pilot group. Go out, if you can, pick up overtime and help this operation recover. I agree, Bernie. You know, we've been in hotels for two weeks, essentially, with the company to get to this deal where... We feel, as your MEC, we can all be happy. We can move forward. We can turn over a new leaf from, let's be honest, a contract that had a lot of adversarial effects. And we have something new. And I think the best way to start off with something new is on the right foot. And I I echo your thoughts, Bernie. It is time that our pilots can step up. They understand that we are going to be treated differently. Uh, And in that sense... We're bringing back a lot of the old WestJet feeling. And part of that is stepping up. And we are encouraging pilots to help out this weekend, not only for the company's sake, but for your own. And for the passengers. You know, there are passengers that have booked on our flights and uh, they are inconvenienced. Let's get those people where they have to be. 
Now, we were kind of joking over the last few podcasts on some of the items that have been hung up in negotiations. One of them was uniforms. And we've been non-transpicious on uniforms and what was hung up on it. And Bernie, can you share maybe what the last final piece of the puzzle maybe was missing? Finally, we were able to get a hat that you could wear if you wanted and didn't have to wear if you didn't want to. Perfect. We're going to be getting some rest and we're going to be right back with you with a whole bunch of information. Stay tuned and thank you for listening to this episode of Pirate. Welcome to the Construction User 2.0 from the Association of Union Constructors. In this podcast, we explore the latest labor trends, industry insights, and important issues in the world of construction. Join us for conversations with industry leaders, subject matter experts, and innovative visionaries as we discuss how we are building the world of tomorrow. Today's guest began his career as an iron worker as an apprentice with Local 63 out of Chicago in 1980. He worked his way up the leadership ladder with stops as conductor, trustee, general organizer, vice president, and nearly everything in between. He was elected general president of the Iron Workers effective July 1st, 2015, and he now works out of Alexandria, Virginia, where he's the proud father of three children and one granddaughter. With over 40 years of service and still going strong, please welcome Iron Workers General President Eric Dean. How are you doing today? Things are going well. It's a Friday, and I actually have a weekend off, which is a rarity, so it's good. What's the state of the kind of the union and industry? How are we doing now in, in the 2023? It's always changing, but very much the same. So when I got in, the unique part about being an iron worker is a ton of iron still weighs a ton of iron. Working aloft is still inherently dangerous, and you have to take precautions. But the technology is advanced so much differently to the point where the manpower or the workforce that we have, there used to be significantly a lot more ironworkers on any given job site. And today through modularization and different means and methods, it essentially takes less people to produce the same amount of high-rise activity or industrial activity. But nonetheless, there's still an amount of craft hours uh, to get a certain project done in a certain amount of time. But the delivery and the means and method uh, have evolved, and so too have our workforce, you know, our members. What would you say is that, like, the, the, what is the most pressing issue is is kind of facing the the uh, the unions right now? What is that it? Obviously, there's an abundance of work at a large scale in the industrial and energy sector that is creating a demand at a time when we're seeing as social scientists that predict through uh, the baby boomer generation leaving, we have this replacement issue of training uh, the next generational workforce and resupplying not only rank and file trade craft workers, but we got to resupply the senior management, the general form and the superintendents. And that demand has never been... We, I'd say probably prior to the, you know, right out of coming out of World War II, which I wasn't around then. Well, Mr. Dean, thank you so much for your time. I can't uh, thank you enough for being willing to come on and talk to us. It's always a pleasure. 
You've just listened to the Construction User 2.0 podcast from the Association of Union Constructors. Don't forget to subscribe to get all future episodes of what is going on and what is current in the union construction and maintenance industry. Welcome back to another edition of We Rise Fighting Labor Podcast. We bring you today's labor news, history, and analysis from the U.S. and around the world. This is a podcast you listen to with your fellow workers organizing on the shop floor. This is a podcast you listen to before walking into your union meeting. All right, and now we turn towards our interview with Brother Steve Babson, who's a labor educator and union activist living in Detroit. Now retired, Babson worked as an instructor and extension program coordinator in the Labor Studies Center at Wayne State University. He's the author of various books, including Working in Detroit, The Making of a Union Town, and The Color of Law, Ernie Goodman, and the Struggle for Labor and Civil Rights in Detroit. So, Brother Babson, we're uh, honored to have you today. Welcome. The, the book that I just published is called A Forgotten Populist When Farmers Turned Left to Save Democracy, which for some people might be kind of counterintuitive because these days they don't really associate farmers uh, with progressive politics, but this is talking about the origins of progressive politics in the United States, uh, really linked to the Knights of Labor as the first, the populist being the first mass organization uh, organized on a multiracial basis along with the Knights of Labor to contest and resist the emergence of uh, corporate capitalism and the oligarchy of their day uh, the the mega rich who are uh, the granddaddies of the uh, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and the rest of them today. Thanks, Steve. So in in your work, uh, what, we, what I noticed in reading this uh, work of your the latest book, Forgotten Populace, as well as previous work, and your historically you've always undergirded your analysis with the horrific role of slavery within the U.S. and internationally, which, of course, was the economic foundations for modern-day monopoly capitalism. And you've also given prominent treatment to the role of the Black freedom struggle in its many forms in uh, your latest book, Forgotten Populist, as well as previously. Why is this uh, fundamentally part of your work historically? Well, it has to be. I mean, there's no other way of understanding uh, uh, what's going on in the United States without a recognition of uh, our specific history um, going back to a time when uh, 4 million workers in the United States were enslaved. Um, and the formation of the steps by which that is linked to uh, the opposition to wage slavery, which was seen as linked in some respects. So there's a gradation of subordination and, um, and exploitation. Um, which in our history uh, includes literal enslavement, but for also includes debt peonage, includes convict leasing, it includes uh, basically the crop lien system, which was also a form of, in fact, enslavement in the South, where farmers who were so dependent on credit, and if you think about it, someone who is growing cotton or growing wheat, uh, they are dependent on credit because there's only one time in the year when they actually are going to collect money, and that's what they harvest. It's not like truck farming or dairy farming. If you're growing wheat or corn or cotton, a commodity crop, you have to borrow money. There's no other way you can afford to get seed and food and hardware and 
fertilizer. You have to borrow that money. And in the South, the system was one in which the furnishing man, often also the landlord, would be providing those supplies at extraordinarily jacked up prices uh, and with high interest embedded as well. The effective interest rate was over 100% in many, many locations across the South. I mean, that's usury is an understatement in that context. And so the furnishing man would then insist on a crop lien where the, the farmer, whether a tenant farmer or sharecropper, uh, or a farm owner, owner of the property is, itself, but still linked and dependent to on that furnishing man, would have to surrender the control of the crop at harvest to the furnishing man uh, as, as a lien. So that actually was being sold by the holder of the debt, and he would then uh, control the accounting for whether or not the revenue from that sale uh, was enough to satisfy uh, your debt. And surprise, surprise, it usually didn't. And so you were held in a perpetual bondage with this whole system of debt. Well, again, the question is, is slavery, therefore, it goes through these gradations of debt peonage, of crop lien, of convict leasing, and wage slavery itself under circumstances where uh, if you try to organize, uh, you're going to be subjected to almost immediate um, suppression and often enough uh, fail violence. All right, listeners, uh, this will be Rise Fighting. Thank uh, Brother Steve Babson for joining us tonight. And we discussed many issues. Feel free to check out his book, Forgotten Populists. There's also a website for that. And also a member of AAUP, AFT and Detroit at Wayne State University. And thanks again for joining us, uh, Brother Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That is going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. That's just a small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on nearly 200, yes, I said 200, Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows. You can check them out, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock urging you, as always, stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Uh-huh.